glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Stand if you would please. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. The Bible says, How be it then, let me back up to verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first, and my temptation temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not nor rejected, but have received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that, if if it had been possible ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing and not only when I am present with you. My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Thank you. You may be seated. And this is probably as clear as we, we get on what had instigated or, or stirred the Apostle Paul, and of course the Holy Spirit of God inspiring it, to write this letter to these Galatian churches. You remember, this is not just one church involved, but the churches, plural, of Galatia. And he's been... You kind of have to read between the lines a little bit to figure out what the issue is at hand. It's very clear here they're observing, as he'll say, months and days and times and years, seasons, these kind of things. They're going back to the the Levitical mandates for observation of Passover and observation of feast days and holy days. There are people in our county, if you meet them, they would try to convince you that true Christianity means you now are to keep those feasts. You're to go back and keep the, the, the Feast of Trumpets and you're supposed to keep the Passover feast and all these things. And what it does is it, it creates an exclusive club of Christians so-called that we are the true Christians. We're the Sabbath keepers. We're the true ones. We're the true I'm going to tell you what. The moment you came to faith in Christ, that made you a child of God. Now, there are things that is supposed to to bear fruition in your life. If you and I are a child of God, it's going to affect our speech. It's going to affect... But it's not just going to affect... It's not just going to affect how your calendar year looks. It's not going to... Uh, it's not going to be resultant in a lot of rituals in your life. I mean, you have to understand that. Rituals under the Old Testament were symbolic and they were a shadow, but they did not make a person righteous. We know that. Christianity is to affect you 24 hours a day seven days a week. And while while we would, for instance, we would say, praise God, we meet on the first day of the week. How many of us know meeting on the first day of the week is not a ritual, 
It is something we choose to do in honor of the resurrected Savior. This is where people get it all wrong. They say, the Sabbath was changed to Sunday. Well, the Catholic Church may, may have done that. May I help you with something this morning and this evening? Sunday is not the Sabbath day. Nor do we pretend it is. Nor do we think it is. Sunday is the first day of the week. No, no one around here is confused about that. The Sabbath and all it stood for was completed when Christ raised from the dead, when Christ died on the cross. We rest in Christ. That's what the Sabbath stands for. You want to take Saturday off and do no work? You are more than welcome to do that. You have all the liberty in the world to do that. But how many of you know Sabbath-keeping Christians feel that somehow they have more a hold of true Christianity than believers in Christ who are actually resting in Christ for their righteousness? It's dangerous. It creates an exclusivity And what happens is, may I say this, this can creep into any church or group of churches that are like-minded to where what is it about us that can separate us, not from the world unto God, but separate us from everybody else to reveal we're the real ones. We're the true ones. The best thing to do is just be true. (laughs) You know what will separate you from the rest of the world? When Christ is formed in you. When you have the heart and mind of Jesus Christ formed in you, it will be reflected in every part of your living. There will be no part untouched. Your home life will be touched. Your calendar will be touched. Your pocketbook will be touched. Your language will be changed. Your thought life will be changed. Because when Christ is formed in you, it's not something you do by ritual. It's who you are. You with me tonight? We many times try to find cheap replacements for Christ being formed in us. Or another way we could put it is us being conformed to Christ. It is much easier many times in the flesh to conform to a ritual than it is being conformed to Christ. You can put on an outward ritual that makes you look spiritual and righteous and hold pride in your heart... (laughs) And what happens is, well, we do this, this, and this, and that makes us righteous or that makes us the true people of God. No, what makes us the people of God is our position in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is to be worked out of us as Christ is formed in us. And what the Galatians had found and what they'd been introduced to was a cheap replacement for true Christianity. True Christianity is you're born again, Christ is dwelling in you, and as he works in you, you submit to his authority in your life, You live life by His leadership through the Holy Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and that is reflected in your living. But instead, we're going to go back to the law and get under bondage to where, why do you do this? I have to. I mean, let's understand, a son serves with a father in this sense. He's my father. He is the source of my life. He is the source of my future. All the things I have in life are from Him, and I serve with Him and for Him because I'm His and He is mine And it is a heart of love that brings obedience rather than a heart of fear. The Galatians were going back to, well, if we don't observe the days just right, uh, who was it telling me we have a, we have a religious movement in our community where they cross themselves like Catholics, but it has to be the right number of fingers to represent the Trinity, and it has to be in the right order. I don't even know the order. If you don't get it right, yeah, you're not going to be heard. Isn't that pitiful? Can you imagine trying to keep up with all that? That's what the Pharisees did. You've got to watch this first and then this second. If you don't, start all over. That's bondage. You know what? We, we, that, and what he's dealing with is these people being bound to ritual 
rather than bound by love to Christ. And so let me give you three things this evening I hope will be helpful to us out of this text. Paul is now going to get a little more by the Spirit of God, a little more specific with them. He's going to get a little more personal with them. So I begin tonight with Paul's obligation to the Galatians. He's going to, he's going to address some things in their churches that, was not, that were not right. Can I say something about the preaching of God's Word here? Whether it be I or another preacher who comes in here, may we be the kind of church that if a preacher comes in here and starts specifically naming things that are wrong in this church, this is what's wrong with this church. You're a good church, you're doing this and this, but here's some things you folks aren't doing. Here's some doctrine you're getting caught up in. We should be able to take it. We have a guest preacher. We have a missions conference. We have a lot of guest preachers in here. Some of them know us well. Some of them don't know us well. But if God uses those preachers to come in here and start telling us some problems with our church, I think we ought to perk up and listen. And I'm not prophesying. I don't know what they'll preach. I know this. We individually should have, but we collectively should have a teachable spirit. We ought to be willing to say, if we're, if we're listening to a wrong voice, we're going to cut it off. How many times if we've got something in our life that we've given our ear to, we feel humiliated if somebody else says, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be paying attention to that. Because we feel like, man, you know, you're telling me I wasn't spiritually discerning. You're telling me that I have given my, myself to be influenced by something that's harming me and that kind of makes me look bad. And so many times we just go into defensive mode. Well, the Galatians here are going to be challenged. They are going to be confronted with a problem that this doctrine that had crept into this church, these influencers in their church that are teaching them error and it comes to Paul's attention. He realizes you Galatians are behaving differently than you used to, and here's why. And how many of us understand this in the context of what we just read? The relationship of the Galatian churches with Paul had changed. Now, apparently, they'd gotten cool toward him. May I say this? Sometimes, and I'll just say this, sometimes it's hard to know how to communicate what I'm about to say without, without it sounding wrong, so but I need to say it. Sometimes when you're in spiritual leadership or care of someone else, the first sign that that person is not doing well spiritually is how they respond toward you. I remember being on the other side of that as a child and as under the care of a pastor. And you know that person is watching for your soul. They're observing your spiritual life. And there are some things they've taught you. When you start opening your ear to things that you know they're against, you know what happens? You start feeling really funny around them. Oh, hey, how are you? Good. Is everything fine? I remember, you know, there have been times in my life that I'll think, what did I do? I've done something wrong. And I, I'm well able to do something wrong, right? But it finally occurs, wait, 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 wait. wait. I am not the one that did it wrong. Not on this time. Not this time. <laughs> Those folks are acting funny because something has changed with them. They've done something. You ever have a child and they just want to be in your presence very quickly and gone? Hey, Dad, how are you doing? Good to see you. Uh, uh, see you later. Uh, things to do. What is up with that? Generally, it's, ah, what did you, what is going on with you? Paul's relationship with the Galatians had changed. Had Paul changed? He said, be as I am. I am as you are. I'm not. We're in the same position. We're in Christ. So you respond to me like I'm responding to you. But they were dealing with him differently. And so it had come to Paul's attention. They're being taught by the Judaizers. As with almost every church Paul established, the Judaizers came in and tried to steal his work. Tried to take those people back 
under the law, which was completed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were now married, as you can read in Romans chapter 7, married to the Lord Jesus Christ, not married to the letter of the law. Amen? And so that he is seeking to see them loyal to Christ. So he, he comprehends. His obligation is he's got to speak to what he comprehends. He says in verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son then an heir of God through Christ. How be it then? So he's going to begin to open up what he has comprehended is going on within. How be it then when ye knew not God, so before you got saved, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. How many of you have observed how Roman Catholicism works? They, they will spend their last two pennies buying a candle to light and put in front of their idol. When we were in Mexico this last time in Valle de Santiago, we were in the heart of Mexico. That's where the kings are. Instead of being you know, in Monterrey, you're in northern Mexico, it's a little more Americanized. And you didn't see there what we saw taking place in Valle de Santiago. Idolatry literally in the streets. Idols in boxes, people burning incense and praying. These people have a lot of money to spend on those kind of things, do they not? You know what they're bound by? We have to do this. We have to go and burn this candle for this loved one who departed because if we don't, they might stay in purgatory longer and we want to pray them out of there. And if we don't pay, we might stay in purgatory longer when we go there and they are serving through fear this dread of what happens if we don't do this. Oh, no. Here's what happens. They live their lives not out of the assurance of life but out of the fear of Death. You know what the law ministers in your life? The fear of death. You're guilty. You're condemned. You deserve to die. And here's what is constantly going on with false religion. I've got to do this ritual because maybe I've got to be constantly striving to get where I'm supposed to be and I have to do this ritual and we got to get baptized for that dead person. What if they weren't a believer? What if they weren't baptized into the one true church? Well, they're dead. Well, we'll get baptized for the dead too saw a video of, uh, some of you shared it with us. It would not, it would be funny if it weren't so sad. Someone in the LDS religion talking about someone missing um, their blessed, you know, eternal marriage because they had a cup of coffee. I mean, this, this woman's broken hearted. Do you realize what they missed because they had a cup? Look, you know, you know where we stand on drinking alcohol. Let me tell you something. If you're born again, don't drink alcohol. But if you did, that does not negate what Christ did for you. Get right with God, get cleaned up, get back on course. But that's not going to negate your salvation. Amen? Because you weren't saved by stopping. And then, so the point would be this. Here's, here's people bound. We're going to go back to that bondage of... We ha- How many of us know this? If under the law you fail to meet the rituals the way God told you to, if you if you miss the Passover when you could have kept it, what was God's penalty? Death. It says if you can keep the Passover, for some reason you're hindered from keeping it on these days, you must keep it on these days. But if you could and you won't, you're worthy of death. If we're going back into the law, that's where you have to go. We have to circumcise the eighth day. What if you circumcise your child the ninth day? You broke the law. What if you do it the seventh day? You broke the law. What if you don't at all? You broke the law. What if you eat a piece of pork? You broke the law. You die. That's where they were going back to. A servant terrified of the master destroying them. He said, that's done. Christ finished that. 
You've been set free. You are now a member of God's family. He comprehends. I'm watching you go back to the ceremonies of the law, back under bondage. And what Paul could have said is, well, they have liberty. You only realize what they were going back to was going to damage them. Let me put it this way. As you read the book of Galatians and you read the book of Colossians, you get the idea the Judaizers had this in mind. They were like some independent Baptists. We got to do anything we can to gain as many as we can by whatever means we can. We're chalking up numbers. We got one more to go our way. One more to adhere to the fact, yes, you can have faith in Christ, but as a Christian, you got to keep the law. It was a mix of law and grace, and they had developed this system of doctrine, not from God's word, but of their own doing. It was a blending of error and truth, which means it was error, and they were going about proselytizing as many as they could. Because remember this, when the Jews would hear the gospel preached to them, and then the Gentiles were given the same exact opportunity to have the same righteousness they were offered, what did the Jewish people, what was their hearts filled with? Envy. They're being treated as good as we are, given the same privileges, the same honors as we are, and that envy had not gone away. So what they said is, we're going to go back and we're going to get these folks back into our religious system. You make no mistake about it tonight. A Jehovah's Witness, you know who he would rather win than anybody else? A Baptist. Let's go in. I'm not kidding you. These people pride themselves in getting people out of a good Baptist Bible-preaching church. We have a Baptist that you... (laughs) By the way, you can't be blood-bought and believe that nonsense. But the fact is, that's, that's how they go about targeting to take away. And so Paul comprehended, you've got some people trying to take you away from the grace of God, the assurance of life, back to the fear of death, the confidence of sonship, back to the dread of servitude. No, that you've, you have been brought to Christ and have, should have assurance there. So, under Paul's obligation, I'm calling it this because Paul, under obligation, addressed the error that they were receiving and it was affecting their lives. Here's what Paul understood first. Somebody must have told him, those people over there have started observing Passover. Like the Galatians? Yes. Gentiles? Yes, Paul. One church? All of them. All the churches have now started implementing Judaism and its law into their daily practical living. You know what that immediately told Paul? You have false doctrine somewhere. When your behavior changes, it's because you change what you believe. Man, mark her down. You know why doctrine is so vitally important? We had a wonderful message last week from missionary Jim Savale on the importance of doctrine. You know what? In the Word of God, the first thing mentioned that Scripture is profitable for is doctrine. Doctrine. Paul, when he addresses his, his, uh, his, uh, his testimony with Timothy, he said, Thou hast fully known my... What's the first thing he says? Doctrine. Meaning what you are taught about the things of God is vitally important because what you believe will affect how you live. May I say this? If you believe that something you do can negate the salvation Christ gave you. Is that going to affect the way you live? You would think that would cause people to live more sanctified and holy, wouldn't you? But it doesn't. Do you know why? Because you can't live up to God's demands. So you have to find selected things you can do to say, I'm hanging my hat on that. So, yes, my heart has pride. Yes, I'm deceitful. Now, don't don't misunderstand what I'm preaching to you. We believe in dressing right. Amen? 
modestly, godly, according to our gender and all that. But some say, yes, I've got this in my life, but I dress right and I don't go to bad movies. Well, good, you shouldn't do those things. But what we're going to do is we're going to hang our hat on our ritual, whatever it may be. Well, I go to church every time the doors are open. Good, we should do, you know what we believe about that. But that isn't what saved you. And that's not what's going to keep you saved. That's going to help you walk with the Lord. That's, I believe the Lord is in church tonight, so let's just go to church with Him. Where two or three are gathered in my name there, am I in the midst? He shows up at assembly time, let's follow Him to church. Amen? But that has nothing to do with making me righteous. That has to do with I'm a son. I want to do what my father is pleased with. I want to make him happy. I want to be better equipped to work in my father's harvest field. Not, now I know that I've got these other things in my life, but look at here. I do this and do this. May I say this? Anytime we are talking about getting into the, people like the word legalism about the book of Galatians, and rightfully so, you're going to deal with some outward thing that man can see instead of inward conformity to Christ. Instead of truly letting Christ change these Galatians through his word and through the Holy Spirit's leadership, they said instead, here's what you can know. If they were hanging their hat on keeping the rituals of Passover and these other feasts and holy days, that means there were things inside that were bad. There were things Christ was trying to address. And what happens is you'll dismiss the pride in your heart because I kept the the Passover. You'll dismiss the deceit of your heart because, hey, I did this. You'll dismiss the character change because you've got this, this little special conduct over here. And particularly going back to the law of Moses here. And so Paul comprehends your conduct has changed because your doctrine has changed. So under his obligation, we see his comprehension of their problem. But then we see his confrontation of their problem. The apostle Paul takes time to write a letter, an entire epistle to say, you have got an error in your church. You have You have misunderstood. You've been falsely taught about your relationship with God through faith in Christ. He's already addressed that. And now it's showing up in your conduct. He says in verse 8, How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. You are a slave to false gods. Before He's drawing them back to, Remember how you behaved before you got saved? How you were, How your idolatry brought you into servitude? You know, I'm telling you, idolatry makes slaves of those who are in it. Slaves, out of fear, they'll, they'll, they'll do unbelievable things trying to assuage their guilt and appease their gods. True? And he says, that's how you behave before you got saved. He says, but now, verse 9, after that you've known God, meaning now you know the true God. It's not false gods anymore. Now you know the true God. Ye did, uh, now, uh, now that you, after you've known God, or rather are known of God. Let me, let me articulate this more clearly. You know God, but more importantly, you're known of God. Your name is in His book, and He knows you as His own child. Isn't that the father-child relationship? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, meaning God has acknowledged you as His own children. He is counting on the fact that the Spirit of God had borne witness with their spirit that they were the children of God, as Romans 8 says. But now after that, you have known God, or rather are known of God. How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements... Whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. It'd be like that little child or that servant who is working in a place, right? He's working for a master. And the master says, I want you up in the morning at 7 a.m. to start milking the cows. I want you, 
Uh, I want you, after you're done milking the cows, I want you to feed the chickens. When you're done with that, I want you to come fix my breakfast. When you're done fixing my breakfast, I want you to clean the kitchen. At that time, you can take your breakfast. When breakfast is done, you're going to go out and move some hay in the barn. When you're done with that, you're going to go plow the field. When you're done with that, you can have some lunch. And he orders out that servant's day. And one day, the servant disobeys. The master calls him in and says, Would you like to continue as a servant here? Would you like to continue to have a livelihood? Yes, sir. Do what you're told. If you don't do what you're told, I'm going to dismiss you and you'll no longer be in my service. And then one day that servant works and works and works and the master comes and says, the work is too much for you, isn't it? The servant says, I can't, I can't be faithful. Master, I've disobeyed you many times. The master says, I know that. And I knew when I gave you the work is more than you could bear. I'll make you an offer. I'm willing to forgive you for all your transgressions against me as my servant and adopt you to be my child. And if you'll accept this, It'll change our relationship. You'll no be longer my servant. You'll come live in my house. And what you'll do is you'll dine at my table. And when I go out and work in the field, you can go work with me. We'll work together. I'll teach you and I'll train you. If you don't have what you need, I'll give it to you. If I adopt you, nothing will ever change our relationship. If you're in error, I'll correct you. But you'll be my son. And the servant says, I accept. And he moves him into the house. No longer does he live out in the servant's quarters. And he gets up one day. And the father says, hey, did you make your bed this morning? He says, no. He says, well, hey, 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 no fear. My children make their beds. Go back up and make your bed. Two weeks later, did you make your bed this morning? No, sir. Okay, well, you're going to have to have some discipline. You're going to kick me out? And he says, never. You're my son. So one day he looks out in the field, 7 a.m., the man's out there milking the cow. Next he's feeding the chickens. Next thing you know, he's doing all this stuff. And the father, the father brings him in and says, what, what are you doing? He says, well, I, I just want to make sure I can stay your son. I want to make sure that I'm all that I'm supposed to be. So I'm going to go back here. And he says, look, I let the servants feed the cows and the chickens. Your job is to be in here and with me. And if I want you to do that, we'll go out and do it together. He says, why are you going back to behaving like you did when you were a servant? You're a son now. Things are all, and it's a poor illustration, but... It illustrates the point when you and I got saved, it truly changed our relationship with God. So why would we go back and act like servants in fear of death rather than sons who know we've been given life? May I say this? If what is fueling your decisions in your Christian life is, if I don't, no. Everything you need has been done in Christ Jesus. And the point is, you and I can miss opportunities to serve the Lord and But here's the fact of the matter. When you got saved, your relationship with the Lord was established. And Paul says, you're being taught to go back to like you were when you were idolaters. That's not how we serve God. You're not living in fear of his wrath. You're not living in fear of being cast out. But that's you are going again to the weak and beggarly elements. One day, the servant says, the the master says, why are you milking the cow? He said, because I needed a drink of milk. He says, well, then go to the icebox and get one. You didn't need to go milk the cow. But I was afraid you'd get angry at me. Son, whatever's mine is yours. The servants brought the milk in this morning. It's yours to drink. Go get it. Well, why are you out there feeding the chickens? I needed to earn some wages. You don't need wages, son. Everything I own is yours. We go back to the law trying to earn favor with God. It's in vain. The favor of God has been accessed through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I've got to go back and make sure God is really happy with me. I want to tell you something today. 
I understand we, we live to please God, but there's a difference in a father, a son seeking to please his father, and a servant seeking to appease and please a master. There's a vast difference. You know what, today I had the opportunity last night to preach, or last week, preach with, with my dad. I preached and he followed. I got news for you. I wanted my dad to be pleased with what I preached, but it wasn't so he wouldn't rip my head off when we were done. It's because I love him and I trust him and I, I, I appreciate his approval and his care in my life as my father, even as a grown, grown man. But I realize if I get up and I preach a dud, I know how my dad will treat me. I'm still his son. <laughs> you with me tonight? Some poor illustrations I fear, but here's what happens. There are some people coming in planting fear in the hearts of the Galatians. They were securing Christ Jesus, and people come in and said, No, you're actually not. If you're not keeping the law, God is going to reject you. That is, that is what separates you and reveals you're a truly righteous person, is by keeping the law. That had already been proven. No one except Jesus Christ could do that. So they're dragging them back to serve a master that no one can please. No one can fulfill that. And so Paul comprehends that and he confronts them. He says, again, verse 9, But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, wherein do ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. Let me try to give you another illustration very quickly. If I went out uh, to town one day, and I didn't realize when my children wasn't home, and I'm driving down the street, and I see little old Jansen out there on the corner with a cardboard sign saying, we'll work for food. And somebody picks him up, takes him to the garden, makes him pull weeds and all this stuff, and I say, son, what are you, what are you doing? Why did you leave home? You, you, this is bad. You shouldn't have left home. You're in danger. He says, well, Dad, I, I needed food to eat. I'm about to starve. We, we provide breakfast for you every morning. Every morning. And lunch. And supper. Why are you acting like a beggar when you've got everything you need? You've got clothing. You, you don't need to go out and work for food. Stay at home. I'll care for you. What do you need that God has not provided for you in Christ Jesus? What is not yours spiritually right now as a Christian? All things, Paul said, are yours. He has made unto us wisdom and sanctification and honor. Wouldn't it be odd if you saw my child out on the street saying we'll work for food? How would that reflect on me as his dad? Why should, he, why should one of my children go out and be a beggar? When he says you desire the weak and beggarly elements, he's saying... You're acting like spiritual paupers when actually you're spiritual princes. Your sons of God don't act like paupers. Don't act like the idolaters who don't know God. You know Him. Don't act like the idolaters who don't have wisdom. Don't act like the idolaters that are straining at anything to assuage their guilt, to appease their conscience, and to appease their gods. Your God has been satisfied through Jesus Christ's sacrifice and through faith in Him, you are wealthy spiritually. You and I have all the... You know what? When we as Christians are foolish, it's doubly foolish. You know why? We have the wisdom of God at our disposal if we would but ask our Father for it. When you and I say, I don't know how to live for God. I can't overcome temptation. 
And you know what happens when we do not by faith access the life of Christ? You know what we'll turn again to? Some false system. We'll say, well, I found deficient what I needed as a Christian. The Christian life was too hard. Then you somehow did not approach it by faith. Paul is saying, what you're doing doesn't make a lick of sense. That's not exactly what he said, but that's my terminology. Here you are with the wealth of God at your fingertips and you're going out acting like spiritual beggars who, who are trying to get the riches of God through performance. That's not going to work. So he confronts them with their error. That's Paul's obligation. But you know what Paul realized? It's going to cost him. And it did cost him. He says down here in Galatians 4, move on down to the bottom of, uh, of the section we read. He says to them, um, let me find my place. Verse 15, verse 16. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Undoubtedly, there were people when confronted with what the Apostle Paul had preached, the truth of God's word, had ill affected the minds of the Galatians toward the Apostle Paul. Let me use family illustration as an illustration. If I am... One of the things I seek to be very careful about as a preacher, pastor, and when I was a youth pastor, youth youth leader, whatever, you may have parents that you can observe they're not doing the greatest job in the world. So you have kids you bring in on the bus. But you know, I would never, and I think it's a wicked thing, to take children and seek to turn them against their parents in the sense of trying to steal their loyalty away. You with me tonight? That's That's a wicked thing to do. Uh, we find in the story of Samson, when Samson went and found uh, a woman of the Philistines, wanted to marry her, there were some things he didn't even tell his own parents, but she sought to get loyalty from Samson that he wouldn't even give to his own parents. And sure enough, by and by, each and every woman seemed to do that with him and destroyed him by and by. My point is this tonight. When God has put people in your life, spiritual leadership in your life, to watch for your soul, you make no mistake, there will be emissaries of the devil to turn you against those very people, to affect you against them, to say, well, it never ceases to amaze me how many people I've met and, and ask them, so you say you're a Christian, when do you say, you know what? Vacation Bible school at such and such Baptist church. Where do you go to church today? Well, I'm in this whatever wingnut job. What happened? Those people didn't lead you to Christ. Well, I just, you know, I realized this was a superior way. And, well, I'm grateful for those who led me to Christ. They didn't have the depth of spiritual wisdom that these people did. Huh? I'll tell you something. If someone loved you enough to give you the gospel and confront you with the truth, unless they run off the deep end, keep listening to them as they teach you how to serve Christ. The church that leads you to Christ is the church that's going to help you continue to serve Christ. Again, unless they quit serving Christ. The Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. But how many times have we seen this played out? Someone gets saved, the false teachers sweep in and say, no, no. Do you know what? Where were the Judaizers when these people were worshiping idols? Where were they then? Were they coming, calling these people to repentance, caring for their soul? No, no, no. No, they were nowhere around then. Not until they get saved and start serving God did the Judaizers care about them. Telling you they didn't care about them. All they're trying to do is sidetrack them and derail them from serving the Lord. And Paul says, I'm not going to let you go on like this without confronting you with what's going on. I heard recently of a story, a family in a church, and they, they, they started, the young people in that family moved out of state, started attending another church, 
And these are two independent Baptist churches, but very different churches. And some of the things they were being taught in the church they were originally in was errant. So the preaching from the pulpit began to challenge the minds of these young people. They began to talk to their parents. Next thing you know, the pastor of that church is calling the pastor of this church saying, hey, what are you telling my people? They're coming back and not accepting what I'm telling them. And my word is final. And, you know, they just need to do whatever I say. And Anyway, it was not pretty because here's what happens. When, when religious leadership says, you know what? It's what the Bible calls the evil eye. I'm looking for a following. It's what apostates do. I'm looking for a following. And anyone or anything that threatens that, we're going to turn you against it. Stay away from that. Here's what's going on. The Apostle Paul had been used of God to lead the Galatians to saving faith in Christ. The Judaizers come along and they've ill-affected these people toward Paul. Paul realizes when I tell you this, because I tell you the truth, I realize I've become an enemy to you. Am I become, am I there? And it's a question, it's a rhetorical question to them in verse 16. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Can I give you a principle tonight? If you start despising people because you know they'll tell you the truth, you need to get right with God. When I was out of God's will, not submitted to God's will in my life, you know what I was fishing for? A doctrine that would justify my bad behavior. Now, I wasn't out actively looking for it. But there were certain strains of teaching that sure caught my attention. I thought, hey, I like that. That would allow me to be right and all my teachers who've challenged me with the truth to be wrong. And all of a sudden, I realized this attitude of animosity forming in my heart toward the very people who had poured their lives into me to see me saved, who cared about my future, who wanted to see me serve God. And all of a sudden, I saw as enemies anybody that would confront me with my sin. I can just tell you. It, it was like a pandemic in our youth group. That's the general attitude of everybody. Oh, well, these people with rules, 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 don't do this and don't do that. I'm going to tell you something. You got that attitude? That's scorn. You can't be right with that attitude. I don't care. It doesn't matter. You can't be right with that attitude. And so I don't know what all the Judaizers did to change the attitude of the Galatians toward Paul, but they sure had succeeded. Paul confronts them with the truth knowing it would cost him personally. This is one more reminder in Scripture that the mark of love is the not only willingness, but the purpose to always speak the truth to those we love. We have an emphasis today on, you know, the Ephesians tells us speaking the truth in love. We tend to sway one way or the other on that. We just need to always speak in love. Well, then you always have to speak the truth. Well, isn't it? Life God, people just need to hear the truth. But why? Because we love them. You can't do right if you don't know what's true. You know, Paul says, I realize I've spoken the truth to you and now you don't like me. <laughs> Am I become your enemy? Why did I become your enemy? What did I, what did I do to you, Galatians, for me to become your enemy? Was it, was it speaking the truth that made you upset with me? <laughs> right? So he's, he's acknowledging there was a relationship problem between Paul and the Galatians. I mean, no, Paul's doctrine had not changed. Paul's manner of life had not changed. You know who had changed? The Galatians had changed. So his obligation was to speak the truth to them, and he did. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. I'll remind us of this again tonight because we need it. Sometimes I bring this truth forward, and I can acknowledge it doesn't seem always to be very well accepted. Isn't that amazing? The very truth that tells us to always tell people the truth is not always received very much like truth. 
No, that's not really how you love people by telling the truth. Charity covers a multitude of sins. Be careful with that one. (laughs) I know you're sinning, and I'm willing to sin with you so you feel good about yourself. No, Paul said, keep thyself pure, neither be thou partaker of other men's sins. Proverbs 27, verse 5. Open rebuke is better than secret love. You know what that's saying? When someone's willing to openly tell you you're wrong, now you know they love you at some level rather than them pretending to love you and keeping their mouth shut. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You know, I think of one kiss in the New Testament. And who did it come from? Judas Iscariot. I find Jesus washing the disciples' feet, but I never find him kissing them. I find him confronting Peter on a regular basis with Peter's error. I find him telling James and John, you know not what spirits you're of. I I challenge anybody to find one time that Jesus flattered his disciples. Oh, John, you're the most wonderful person. Peter, oh. You know what? He loved them enough to constantly bring the truth to bear in their lives. You know why we refrain many times from telling our loved ones the truth? We need to get a hold of this. Church, Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church, those in this room tonight, we need to get a hold of this. You know how we often won't tell our loved ones the truth? Because we love us more than we love them. How many of you know someone's tried to tell you the truth and you remember how you reacted? That is not true about me. I know me. Probably not. Normally other people know us better than we know us. Amen? Here's what happens. Paul is confronting them with, you've been deceived. You've been caught up with error. Your attitude toward me reflects that. Your attitude toward the truth reflects that. Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And I know we can abuse that verse, and I understand you can abuse Proverbs 27, 5, and 6. We don't need to be going around saying, you know what, your hair looks really bad today. Speaking the truth in love. <laughs> That's not what it's talking about. But all of us know there are those moments we see something in the life of a loved one and it is our place. It's it's in my mate or it's in one of my children or it's in a brother in in Christ or uh, it's as a pastor, it's in the church. It's, It's actually my responsibility to speak up and say something, but we refrain for this one reason. If I do, they'll think I'm their enemy and I don't want to be treated like an enemy. Paul says, I am willing for you to have a bad attitude toward me in order to help you get corrected what's wrong in your life. You with me tonight? So then Paul's obligation. Number two, as we move along get, get finished here, Paul's objection. He gives them a number of things that he objects to in their new frame uh, of direction. They've taken a change of direction. Okay, uh, they're, they're aiming for something different rather than just pleasing the Lord. And so he says in verse 8, Howbeit then, when you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire to be again, again to be in bondage? He gives example. You observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you. That doesn't mean like Paul says, Oh no, what are they going to do to me? That's not how he's using this frame. You mean he's fearful for them. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. 
You're making it look like I wasted my effort on you. The direction you're taking tells me you don't comprehend what God did for you. You don't grasp what it means to be saved by the grace of God. And it concerns me that all the labor I invested is not going to bear fruit. How many have ever, okay, last last spring I planted my garden, I planted green beans, I planted corn, I planted carrots, and I planted potatoes. I got a few potatoes, thank you, deer, for eating the blooms off my plants. So I'll take vengeance on them. I already have. <laughs> we'll get our potatoes one way or another. <laughs> got my potatoes. My beans never came up. It was rainy and cool. My corn, I think, what we get, guys? Four stalks that came up. We didn't get to eat a bite of it. You know what happens? I feel like, great. It was hours in the garden planting that, hoeing, getting the weeds out, rototilling, fertilizing, all that. My labor was in vain. May I say something? When you let a false doctrine captivate your mind because it appeals to your pride and flesh and pull you aside and you quit operating out of your assurance of what God did for you and he saved you and his will for your life, you are causing whoever's invested in you to labor in Vain. What away? How many hours are invested tonight in your spiritual fruitfulness? How many hours go into one message? Prayer, Bible study, preaching. How many hours? How many hours went into you getting saved in the first place? You think about where you are spiritually today. How many hours of someone else's life have been invested in you? What are they getting for what they invested in you? How many hours of schooling have children received in a Christian home to teach them the ways of God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You veer off of that and you are wasting someone else's life. They will have bestowed labor in vain. Now Paul's attitude was, I will most gladly therefore spend and be spent. You know why he's visiting back though? I'm willing to hold this row one more time. I'm willing to come. I don't want your life to be fruitless by some cancerous doctrine creeping in and stemming off your joy and your contentment and your your witness to other men. When you and I get away from the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and start dabbling in some false, I'm going to tell you something. Say, Pastor, you get all upset about Calvinism. This is one of the reasons why it is a cancer that robs people of spiritual fruit. My soul was thrilled today. Sit around the table with a number of preachers. I'm sure we could have found a host of things to disagree about if we wanted to. But there was a consensus around that table. Calvinism is a cancer creeping into our churches. And we want to know, where do you stand on that false doctrine? (laughs) Because it is. It robs people of zeal for souls. It robs people of love for sinners. It robs people of a true understanding of the grace of God and how it extends to people. That's one example of a doctrine that will rob you and make you fruitless. So I'm trying to say that. By the way, inside even of independent Baptist churches, there are men promoting doctrines that fills people with pride and arrogance and twists the word of God, teaching that repentance is some kind of a work to save you. You steer clear of those people. Here's why. They want you on their chalkboard to say, I got one more to listen to me instead of whoever. Ah, and tonight, Paul's objection to them is, says, look, there's some inconsistencies in your life. You were taught that you are saved and that God knows you. Why are you acting like he doesn't? Why are you behaving like a stranger to God? Why are you behaving like, if at best, a son that is still under tutelage, who is still behaving like... the? Remember, even the Jews who were believers were like servants under the law. The son under the law, until he's of age, is treated like the rest of the servants. 
instead of a son that's ready to inherit. And he says, no, your behavior is inconsistent with what you know to be true. May I remind us tonight, one of the jobs, and I understand Paul was an apostle, but our jobs as pastors and preachers is to reprove and rebuke. One of the jobs of this preacher is to point out there's some inconsistencies in your life. You say you believe this, but you're doing this. Amen? That's one of the jobs, to say something's wrong. You've... You've believed something wrong. If you know you're saved tonight, if you know that we're saved by grace through faith, you should rest in that and from that serve the one who saved you. If we really believe tonight, for instance, that Christ suffered for our sins, being a living sacrifice is merely reasonable. Yeah? And so what Paul's saying is there's inconsistency. Before you were saved, you, you lived serving idols and now you're going back to that and... That's not consistent with your calling. That's not consistent with your position in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he objects to their inconsistency. He objects to their being isolated. Notice what he says. And by the way, there's a difference in being separated unto God and separating ourselves. The Bible says one of the marks of apostates is these are they who separate themselves, meaning they develop things that distinguish them from everybody else to say, look at me, hear me. I'll just say it once again. We who preach the Word of God the way God says to, we really shouldn't be unique. I mean, understand the Bible says the same thing. Uh, somebody may have a unique outline, but the message has been the same for a couple thousand years. <laughs> right? And so once you... How many of you know this? There are times you can say, I know those people are following that man because of X, Y, and Z. That's a problem. I'm going to use an example. We'll move on. There was a movement a few years ago, some people giving child training books and marriage books and how to have a perfect marriage and how to raise perfect kids and all this stuff. Well, they began to teach that Sunday school is bad. Don't put your kids in Sunday school. Divides the family. And when you bring people in, they began to rail on churches that had designated classes to teach children. I beg to ask, poor old Timothy, I don't know what would have happened to him. He was designated to go sit under Paul and have some direct instruction because his father didn't teach him. The, the approach is though everybody's got a perfect family where there's mom and dad and children all come sit on the pew and be instructed together. Well, if we're bringing in people whose parents aren't saved, they need somebody to teach them. And we won't get into all that. But they began to rip and rail on churches that have Sunday school because the church is now a tool of Satan to divide and conquer the home through the Sunday school ministry. And the next thing you know, it is, well, you need to read our books. We'll help you. We've had a perfect marriage for 20 years now. I think that's verbatim. And I don't need this. You know what those people are doing? Isolating themselves. I could pick them out. It's going to sound very (laughs) cruel and unkind. We have a family show up and say, we don't put our children in Sunday school, and we do spankings with PVC pipe. I know whose books you're reading. We can all wind it up and put it in our purse, and that helps us to you know, be able to discipline them without discipline. You know, we don't believe in using a limb like the Bible says. We do these concealed things. and They were getting all their advice from one set of people. And I could tell you in meeting somebody for 10 minutes, you're reading the books of Mike and Debbie Pearl. There, I said their names. That's a problem. When you can so identify these characteristic trademarks that aren't found in the Bible, you'll only find them in these people's writings. These people, by the way, 
That man believes you can reach a point of sinless perfection in your life. You you see how the doctrine affects conduct? I cannot tell you the number of people that quit church for good, forever, and went to home church through the influence of Mike Pearl. Just for the record, you're not going to find his books laying around this church building. Pastor, can we distribute these books? You may not. I don't want anything to do it. You say, well, I can read what I want. You can. But I'm not going to put my blessing on it. That's all I'm saying. You can read whatever you want to read. But we're not going to distribute them around here when I can see that's the fruit of that ministry. A man in Arizona today named Stephen Anderson. He's going around telling everywhere, if you hear somebody preaching that repentance is net, you need to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a false gospel. What? <laughs> that man is a major problem. You know what he's doing? Chalking up his numbers. He is, I can verify this, teaching people under his influence how to infiltrate a church and pull people out of it. Because they're under the influence of bad churches who believe that you have to repent to be saved and that's a work salvation. Literally training people how to move into a church, influence people, and get them to come out. Same thing is going on in Galatians right here. You with me? I'm telling you again and again, this book of Galatians serves as much as a warning. He says, look, that's inconsistent. You're going back. You're going back to the way you behaved before you got saved. I want to tell you something. If you and I have to use carnal means... To win people, we've departed from the gospel. We use the preaching of the gospel and trust the Spirit of God to bless that and work in hearts to save people. Amen? And we have to start using methods to manipulate. Then are we trying Are we trying to help people or are we trying to win them to us? Well, notice what Paul says about these people that were affecting the Galatians. He says in verse 11, I'm afraid of you, lest I bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you. Be as I am, for I am as ye are. You realize how Paul said, I'm no better than you. You live your life for Christ like I'm living my life for Christ because we're all in the same, we're in the same place here with the Lord. You've not injured me at all. He said, I'm not writing to you because you've done me damage. That's, that's, this is not about me being hurt, right? As pastors, I heard one of the preachers today around the table say, don't take things personal. Amen and amen and amen. So this is not about... You hurt my feelings. You don't like me like you used to. I'm going to write you a letter and say you're bad. <laughs> Paul says, no, no, no. You've not injured me. I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied in the Lord. You're in the same position. So you be as I am. I am as you are. We're in the same spiritual plane in Christ. Verse 13, you know how through infirmity of the flesh I preach the gospel and you the verse. You know what he's establishing? Look. I'm human like you. I'm no better than you. When I came, this is his thorn in the flesh that he talks about in 2 Corinthians. He says, verse 14, And my temptation which was in my flesh you despise not. You didn't meet me and say, Oh, you can't serve God. You have an infirmity. Under the law, Paul would have been disqualified from a lot of service. He had a problem in his body that God would not take away. He said, My temptation which was in my flesh you despise not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Meaning... You did not judge me based on my physical attributes. You didn't judge me based upon my, my perfection of body. You, you, you acknowledged I was a servant of God because of Christ. Then he says, verse 15, Where is then the blessedness you spake of? He said, this has changed though. He said, I'm not talking about being personally injured, but something changed our relationship. Where's that blessedness? For I bear you record that if it had been possible... You would have plucked, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Many from this text assume and believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh was in his eyes. 
Now, we won't preach that with authority. This is the best indication we have of where his thorn was. And it would make sense based on how he got saved. On the Damascus Road, he was struck with blindness, and there were scales on his eyes, and they were removed. And it would seem that he had something wrong with his eyes. And he said, and whether it was temporary when he was in Galatia or this is the thorn in the flesh, he says, if it had been possible, you had such concern and mercy for me as a fellow brother in Christ that you would have plucked your eyes out and given them to me. That's the love and affection they used to have for Paul. You know, there are times in this land, there are preachers that people would go and listen to and be blessed by and sit under and be fed by. And today, they wouldn't cross the street to hear them. I'll tell you why. Because there's been some people that have ill-affected them. You don't need to hear those King James-only Bible-thumping preachers, those legalistic, narrow-minded, hate-filled men. A man on a podcast the other night, he's preached all over, been a missionary all over the world. You could hear him saying, there was a day when people hungered for the truths I preached, but that's changed. What changed? Now, there are times men change. They, they corrupt. They're demises. But I've watched some men in my life, their preaching has been the same as long as I've known them. They are preaching the truth. But people that at one time would have plucked their eyes out for them wouldn't cross the... I'll say it this way. There's a group of men out today making podcasts railing on the brethren. I heard some preaching about this last week talking about all the bad things that all these bad preachers do. And they are more sympathetic toward Garth Brooks country music than they are toward fundamental Bible preaching Baptist preachers. And I'm not making it up. I've heard it. They are more sympathetic toward drinking beer than they are believing in the King James Bible being the Word of God. I've heard it with my own ears. I'm going to tell you something. Something's wrong with that. It is wicked with a capital W to turn people aside from holy living through accusation and ill-affecting. Look, if someone's in sin, we have a way, to, a recourse from God how to deal with that. Do we not? I know. Start a podcast and advertise to the world how much you hate these people. That's the recourse. No, it's not. Nothing new under the sun. What's going on in Galatia? There were some people that had changed the attitude of the Galatians toward Paul. Paul was a divinely appointed resource of spiritual leadership in their life. And these people come in and said, you don't need to listen to him. He's teaching you you're free from the law. He's lying to you. He is condemning your soul. He has preached you a false gospel. You've got to go back and keep the law or you're not going to stay in God's family. And they believed him. And I assume out of fear. And he says in verse 16, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you. Why? That ye might affect them. I've used the word isolation. The Bible word is exclude you. They want to make you an exclusive group of people so that you can affect them. You know what? When you can grow your numbers, you can grow your contributions. How many people... How many people are there on the internet, television, worldwide ministries? They're not attached to a local church anywhere. And boy, they are preaching and helping save you from all the false people in the world. But we have the truth. And if you appreciate our ministry, make a donation of any size. And if it's at least this size, we'll send you a little gift. You know what they're doing? They're getting you stirred up, zealously affected for their cause so that you can affect them. Oh, we just, Paul talks about this in Colossians. They were making a big deal of circumcisions. They could say, we got one more. We got one more. There are some men who do this with baptism. Oh, we baptized 22 today. Were they really born again? Well, we think so. But boy, we got them baptized. Got their numbers added up. And look at us. 
You with me tonight? The Judaizers were zealously affecting the Galatians that the Galatians might affect them so they could grow their base, so they could grow their following. And that deals, he's objecting to their inconsistency in the, in the lives of the Galatians. Their actions were not consistent with pure doctrine. He was objecting to their isolation by these false teachers, excluding them from all other Christians to having this, this unique brand of Christianity. How many of you know every cult that's been born has been born through this exclusiveness? Joseph Smith, I tried all the churches and none of them had the truth. How would you know? <laughs> so then I went out and I got me some divining rocks and I found the truth. It's been hidden and now we're the one true church. You, it happens the same every time. They exclude you that they might be affected by those they exclude. And so he was objecting to the influences on their life and the way they were being influenced. He says, he goes on to say, it's good to be zealously affected. He says, they zealously affect you, verse 17, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. So it's not wrong to be zealously affected, but not the way you are. And he says, and not only when I'm present with you, meaning you don't need to be responding to human presence. You need to be responding to God. I did a study and studying for this, this message on how many times Paul admonishes the churches he's talking to about being the same whether he's present or absent. Any parent understands this. I want you to do what's right because you want to do what's right. I don't want you following my rules because I'm in the room and you're afraid of what I'll do. I want you following the rules because you know my rules are based in love for you and you'll express your love in return by honoring my wishes in my absence. Paul commended the Philippians that they were the same whether he was present or absent. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I'm not there bodily, but my spirit is with you. And if I were there, this is what would be done. May I say this? Any child that is different when the parent is in the room hasn't got a hold of what it means to honor father and mother. I was with my niece last week, and we were in the store, and I noticed wherever I went, she went, and Dawson was with us, and he went the other way. I told this to Jimeth. I said, man, she just stuck right by my side like... Wow, she's my shadow, you know. And that's not really her nature. I just made the assumption, her mom must have said, you go somewhere, you stay with Uncle Nevin. Because that's what happened. Her mom wasn't even with us. It was commendable to me. But here's what, I didn't tell her she had to. There she is, everywhere I went. We ought to be that way. You know what, we ought to be one thing when the pastor's around, another when he's not. May I say this, a pastor that loves you is... You know, parents that love you, they, you know, they're going to be saying, well, you know, I've got to always be having my eyes on my children. They won't do what's right. And then they're never going to do what's right anyway. And Paul understood this. He said, it's not only when I'm there. He's getting at the root of what was wrong with them. The fear of man bringeth a snare. You've let some men affect you in a way they should not. And it, you should be doing what's right toward the Lord, whether I'm there or not. You see, the Holy Spirit is with us all the time. They had reverted to the old ways of the fear of man and fear of death rather than assurance of life and fear of God. So then Paul's objection is seen finally, Paul's objective. Paul's objective is seen in verse 19. My little children of whom I travail in birth again. He's not talking, he doesn't mean they lost their salvation, now they're not. He calls them what? My little children. He's not negating the fact they're still saved. But he says, I'm travailing birth again until... Christ be formed, what's his next two words? In you. In you. Bible Christianity works always from the inside out. You can have a cheap replacement for what needs to take place in you. 
I thought of this in preparing for this message. I believe in standards of righteousness. I don't have a problem with the word standards. But I believe this. In my mind, standards are secondary. They're not my goal. I don't get up thinking, if I can have, the more rules I have in my life, the more godly I am. What I get up thinking is, for instance, this. I gave my wife this illustration. Romans 12, 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, meaning don't become like unbelievers. Don't be fashioned according to this world. 1 Peter 1, 13 says the same thing. It talks about not, being, not fashioning ourselves according to the former lust in our ignorance. So we're not to be like the world. That's pretty broad, isn't it? So what we do is find out anything the world is doing and do just the opposite. They drive cars, we drive buggies. Uh, they, they paint their cars, we don't. They like the color blue. Well, we like the color white. That's not what it's talking about. The idea would be don't, don't become like them. That's a broad commandment, but it has a lot of applications in my life. And I thought one of the outcomes of that commandment is, this has to do with the music I listen to. I will not turn my radio on and listen to a country music song. Not because I think, if I put a standard in my life to only listen to music that is dull and boring, God will be pleased. No. Number one, my music is not dull and boring. Someone else may think so. I don't think so. But I know this. If I hear men glorying in immorality, in drunkenness, in loose living, I'm going to start adapting to the world's values. When they glory in their covetousness and their discontentment and their envy, and the, you know that music is full of that, isn't it? And if I listen to that long enough, you know what it's going to do? I'm going to start conforming to the world in the way I think. Then I'm going to start conforming to the world in the way I talk. So in order to fulfill, you know what my objective is? I want to obey my father. He doesn't want me being like them. He wants me to be like his son. So in order to accomplish my objective, my objective is not to be different from the world. My objective is to obey my Father. He made it clear, I don't want you conformed to the world. I want you transformed by the renewing of your mind. That kind of music does not renew my mind. I think that way already. I don't need any help. Right? So I create a standard in my life. My objective is to not be conformed to the world because that's how I know God wants that. I can't show you a Bible verse that says, Thou shalt not listen to country music. We're not under law. We're under grace. I don't need a law that tells me not to. I've got the grace of my Father in my life saying, I have forgiven you. Now obey me. Well, in order to obey you, my objective is to obey you here. I won't be able to if i got this influence in my life. So I'm just going to cut that off. I've got a standard, but that's not my goal. You know what? There are people that never turn on a country music station. They're going to die and go to hell someday because they've never come to faith in Christ. But I have, and he's my father, and I can give you other illustrations, illustrations about the way we dress or what we do. But you know what? Those aren't the objectives. The objective is Christ formed in you. You know what fueled the life of Jesus Christ? He said, I do always those things that please him. And Paul says, I want Christ formed in you. I don't want to see you Galatians living your life to please them or for that matter to please me. Isn't that what he's saying? Not only when I'm present with you. I want you to be, I want Christ formed in you. That heart of righteousness that loves the Father. That, that spirit of God in you that cries, Abba, Father. He says, and I'm going to, you know what Paul's saying? Your spiritual state is causing me tremendous pain. You ladies had children? Is that a lovely experience? It is once the baby gets there. And Paul says, I am laboring to see you conformed to Jesus Christ. Christ formed in you. May I say this? If we have a form of righteousness outwardly, 
that is not the product of the presence of Christ inwardly, we've missed it. We've missed it. But may I say this, if Christ is formed in you, guess what's going to happen? It's going to come out of you. And Paul says, here's my analogy, just like a woman has to have pain in birth to bring forth a child, it takes pain for me as your minister, as the apostle Paul to minister in your life to see Christ. But he said, I'm willing to travail in birth again. We went through this before when you got saved. Now we're dealing with how to live the sanctified life. And the, the goal is Christ formed in you. Romans eight twenty nine. And whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. May I say this tonight? When God saved you tonight, he has one plan for your life, for you to be conformed to Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful, we'll come up with cheap outward replacements for inward transformation. No outward trapping can ever replace the inward presence and conformity to Christ. The heart of Christ is honest. The heart of Christ is condemned. The heart of Christ is not envious. It's not bitter. We need to be conformed to him. Every outward sin is the product of inward sin. Every. Paul says, what I want, what these Judaizers have done, has changed. they have dealt with what's on the outside of you, your flesh, your rituals. I want to see Christ formed in you. May I say this tonight? I'll give one last illustration. I need to be done. I want to see God's people look like Christians, talk like Christians. But if we're not careful as pastors, we can so focus on that. Well, you need to do this. And I'm all for it. And by the way, if Christ is in you, this is how it's carried out outwardly. But you know what? I believe this, for instance, in dealing, we'll do with the subject of modesty, women dressing modestly. We believe in that. God's Word teaches it, commands it. But if all of a sudden is, well, because we go to Bonners Ferry Baptist Church, we dress this way. That won't last. Because it displeases the preacher, I'll dress this way. Because it displeases my dad or my mom, I'll dress this way. That'll never last. That's surface. All that has to happen is the, the wave of time change. I've watched from a time where there seemed to be kind of a uniformity among Christians and what we believed was right and wrong about that to people all over the map and mad and angry and bitter and all this. You know what will fix that? I just want to please God. If I'm a lady, I wouldn't want to dress in a way that would cause somebody, tempt somebody to sin. My goodness, that will cut out 90% of what the world's offering, do you? But the goal is what? I want to please God. I just want to please God. I want to do what's acceptable to Him because He saved me. I know I'm saved. I'm not working at it. I'm saved. I know it. And so what happens is we need to have the heart of Christ to say, I just want to do what I know pleases God. I don't want anything in my life that would displease my wonderful, loving Father who's given me all things in Christ Jesus. And so then Paul expresses. Paul's not angry here. He's out of his affection dealing with him. He says, my little children, verse 19, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now. He said, you should be doing right whether I'm present or not. Obviously, in my absence, you've not. So I wish and desire to be with you now and to change my voice. <laughs> Meaning, I cannot express in writing what I want to express to you. I wish I were with you now so I could change the inflection in my voice to help you understand what I'm trying to say to you. Amen? You know what you're hearing from Paul? I love you and I want what's right for you. I don't want to see you led astray by these people who are simply motivated by self-promotion. They're zealously affecting you that you might affect them. Oh, I wish I could be there to bring you back to the person who saved you and get your heart loyal to him. Loyal to him. Amen? That is what Christianity is. I live my life under the one who died for me, lives for me, saved me. Mm-hmm.